Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interviewed Asmath Pasha, a member of the Forbes Technology Council who has 25 plus years of experience in the software and data space, with a special focus on implementing large-scale data projects at consulting companies like Capgemini and Paradigm Technology. We covered a lot, but one interesting insight was Asmath's belief that we should have some people-in-the-loop aspect to data discovery. I'm seeing everyone trying to solve the data discovery challenge exclusively with tooling, and it's causing a lot of strife. Maybe a data concierge type of role might be helpful to supplement the tooling. It's an interesting avenue to explore. I'm just beginning to, to think about how that might actually work and how it, it might also not be very scalable depending on how many people you've got in your org trying to use the data. Asmath talked about a few things he sees as crucial to getting a large-scale implementation in the data space right. First one is the data product experience, you know, what Jamat calls the experience plane for data mesh. Asma sees this as a crucial aspect for driving organizational buy-in. If your product, really any product, has a bad experience, it's going to limit adoption. Number two is data discovery, as we mentioned a bit ago. Number three, staying tool agnostic. There's a lot of reasons for this. Some of it is to quote unquote future-proof yourself. Some of it's just to not get too tied into any one vendor um, from a lock-in perspective, but also from a capabilities perspective. You should always be out there looking at what are we trying to solve, not what tool are we trying to use. Number four would be looking at your investments over a five-year time horizon, not just right now. This will help you prevent from kind of constantly iterating simply because you weren't focused on the mid to longer term. Number five, reducing time to delivery for your data product producers, especially for their initial delivery. And number six, data democratization, broadly speaking. We've got to lower that bar to using and accessing the data, and then we've got to raise, we've got to raise the quality of the data that's, that you're putting out there. Asmoth had an interesting insight on the modern data stack. We're driving towards commoditization of the data ecosystem, and that's great and important for getting to a much larger, larger data usage scale. 
if we continue to have too much friction in adopting tooling or scaling our uh, our usage of tooling, we're going to constantly be held back. So the more that we can commoditize and really move forward with the capabilities of scaling our usage of any one tool or adopting new tools, that's, that's very crucial. Lastly, we covered Osmoth's three value measurements in data, cost savings, business value, you know, kind of driving new business, things like that, and data reuse. But Osmoth believes we're entering a new era of using data and that we will need to find new metrics and measurements to assess the value of our data. I think you'll get a lot out of this from somebody who's got a more broad perspective rather than somebody who's super specifically focused in the in a data mesh implementation or on the data mesh space. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Really excited about this episode today. I've got Asmath Pasha, who's from the Forbes Technology Council. Um, and we're going to be talking about, he's got a, a long history of doing IT projects. And we're going to be talking about kind of what he's learned over 25 years and how that can apply to data mesh so that we can prevent ourselves from going down kind of bad paths. And, you know, a lot of advice from a, a career of learning of how to do these types of large scale transitions and and um, and projects. So, if you don't mind, Asmath, if you could give yourself or if you could give the the listeners a bit of an introduction to yourself, and we can jump from there. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it, and thanks for having me on the show here. Um, my name is Azmat Pasha. I've been in the industry for about uh, going about 26th year now, and fortunately, <laughs> been uh, or you know in the data and analytics field for a long time, right? Um, so, uh, pretty much, uh, I'm representing Forbes Technology Council here, and uh, recently, I've been with um, Paradigm as the Chief Digital Officer, and with Capgemini, running the Snowflake Global Competency. So um, data mesh is, although it's been, uh, you know, the buzzword has been making it in the last two, three years, it's been around with us, right? I mean, the technology industry as such, as you see, it regularly cycles through trends on its endless path toward innovation, right? And one of the latest trends is the concept of data mesh. So basically, what is data mesh is, is it's an architectural design uh, to decentralize and make it available closer to the products and make more data available in a more productized format to the customers. And, and you know, Jamak has talked a lot about the organizational side, and it's not as much in the written content as it is in, in her presentations, but like what paradigms have you seen in the past that, that have that organizational component? And, and is that something where that kind of forever uh, 
pendulum between centralization and decentralization that seems to swing back and forth constantly. Have you seen many uh, kind of past paradigms that really focus as much on the organizational as, as data mesh does? Yeah, that's a great question, Scott. So pretty much, I mean, you should look at it from more of a centralized single source of truth, right? That's what we're trying to drive. We as practitioners talk to our customers, talk to many of our uh, stakeholders in trying to bring that single view of the data, right? So looking at those uh, levers, they are like, there's a data quality, there's metadata, there's data architecture, data modeling, uh, data interoperability, which is very critical, and uh, and of course the data warehouse and the business intelligence, which basically fosters all that. Right. So these are always going to be there, and these were the levers, pretty much leading towards that single uh, source of truth and how the data mesh nets out to making data more accessible, um, increasing availability, improving discoverability and ensuring governance, quality, and uplifting security. So this is, um, uh, it's, it's been around with us, and uh, this is the, the concept is more towards centralizing the source of uh, the data, but at the same token, decentralizing and making it more closer to the customer, right? In a much more domain-driven distributed architecture. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and closer as well to the, the producers, right? Where by putting right. it on the producers and then they have to communicate with the consumers. I, I think that's something that it's it's funny how many times the conversation of when I'm talking to practitioners it goes towards we got the people in the room and they really started to the producers and consumers and they their eyes lit up because they could actually communicate well and they just had never spoken. So um, it's it's kind of crazy that that uh, change aspect of just trying to change the attitude. So, um, you you know, we wanted to talk about kind of data mesh from a practitioner view. A lot of what's been out there has, has been somewhat theoretical, right? We're still early days in even the most advanced journeys of, of towards data mesh. So, you know, would love to get your view on how you think uh, an organization might set themselves up to be successful, right? Rather than I, I'm trying to rush towards my POC, right? Or I'm trying to rush towards getting as many data products as possible. Like, you know, that kind of slow down to speed up aspect. What have you seen historically from projects that have made projects that are this large and this kind of long uh, tailed, long winded, be successful so that it's not kind of a flash in the pan and that it's not, you know, a year in everybody goes, okay, we're going to move to the next thing. What, what have you seen that organizations have done that, to make themselves successful? So, I mean, this is a great question. So you have to look at the way things have been operating in the old way of doing things, right? Where uh, the data warehouses were created uh, and they were talking about more centralized data team that supports multiple domains. Code management was a challenge, data and policy. Um, then, uh, then, then the concept of more optimization for control and security, that became very pivotal and more of the domain awareness started getting forced. And these were all basically in a traditional monolithic data models, right? Now, what? so that's the old ways of doing things. Now, what we're seeing customers talking about and where we have implemented projects and large-scale uh, implementations have been is 
um, more autonomous, more serving the domains, uh, being able to bring in that pipeline concept, right? Like how Snowflake has Snowpipe, right? Which basically trying to orchestrate the the layer where the data is coming ingested, whether it's real time or batch processing, uh, whether it sits on an AWS architecture or Azure, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're looking at um, you know much more decentralizes and optimization, right? And making it more domain agnostic. And these are the things that I'm seeing that that the market is shifting towards. And more and more, as we are talking about it, people are doing it without realizing that. In, in what in fact they're doing is a data mesh, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, they're, Although they're, it's part of their roadmap, yeah. They're, they're definitely headed that way. And, you know, that governance aspect, I think, is, is a, an interesting place to double click into of how do, how have you seen it be successful um, when you're federating that governance? And it's not fully federated. It's not, you know, just the, the domains now have to own all of governance. How have you seen, um, especially large organizations transition from kind of the super centralized governance towards having governance in the hands of the domains. So, yeah. So basically I would say you have to look at the compliance aspect of it from a governance standpoint. You're looking at data quality uh, and the security of those data products, right? So calling off those few things, I'll just stress upon the fact that when you're doing a self-service enabled and when you're enabling your business users to access, catalog, transform, prepare, you'll have to look at it much more of an agile manner of looking at your requirements, right? Which are much more now, if you look at the use cases and MVPs that our customers are working towards before they stress test and productionalize, they're looking at much more process-driven where they can share the results and look at the data which can be harnessed across different ecosystems, right? And then you're looking at the regulatory aspects to it because you said about data governance, regulations have always prohibited the way the data transfers between different architectures, right? Different Between different departments, companies, and, and geographies. You have to look at that and then since sensitivity of which data can go in if you are like in a, a, a virtual private connectivity mode, whether can you share the concept of data exchange a lot of folks are doing a data exchange right now between the consumers and providers. Those are the reasons why I feel the the governance is going to be a very critical and and the whole concept of the governed mesh topology, where you know how you would have the data products and how you'll have a data integration hub share the data between those from a data source and the data teams is going to be even more. Uh, a critical when you start looking at it from an architecture standpoint. Yeah, I, and I think there's this emerging concept of access by default, but uh, one thing that Jamak has talked about a lot is when somebody runs a query that the governance comes with the data. So if you know if you have access to this data and you run a query and then you decide to share that data with somebody else, they might not have the right to access that data. So how do you manage that? And I think nobody's figured that out at all, right? Like that's, that right now is, is a, um, is, is kind of a pipe dream type of, of thing. So um happy to, to talk further about governance if, if you'd like, but I guess, you know, it, you've got such a rich history of, of, of working with so many things. What, 
What pitfalls would you tell people to avoid here? I mean, is it just like, don't get ahead of yourself or, or things like that? Or what, what do you see as the most likely places that uh, people will get into a bad situation when trying to implement a data? Uh, okay. So this is an interesting question. So this is going to be more of those battle scars that you'll have, right? Yes. <laughs> Implementing large scale, um, decentralized, centralized platforms. So pretty much you're looking at your data product experience, right? How has that been implementing across the enterprise? So large financial services companies, they look at it from, okay, if I'm bringing in that new nomenclature of a data mesh, and then I'm also productizing my data uh, domains, what are the things that I have to avoid? So the key thing is you have to look at it from how you... um, um, get the organizational buy-in into it, right? Is data mesh only appropriate for large complex organizations and large complex projects? That's one thing that you have to always look into because uh, clearly it is meant for the future. You have to prove future-proof your architecture, right? And then you'll have to look at eliminating your enterprise data warehouse in totality over the course of time. And if you're going to be bringing in larger um, cloud-based ecosystems like Redshift, like Snowflake or Synapse, you'll have to look at it from future-proofing your architecture. What kind of standards are there that need to uh, pretty much accelerate your data mesh adoption? And one key thing that I also told you is you'll have to make sure that data is a new oil in your company and making sure that it is a true asset, right, which will show up in your balance sheet somehow. So that's the kind of stakeholder buy-in that you need to have and uh, be very tool agnostic. Let's be honest, right? There's plenty of tools out there that can literally help you do your uh, data mesh and make it much more domain-driven. But you have to stay tool agnostic and look at it as what best fits the architecture and future-proof it. Yeah, I, I think you, you you talk a lot about, uh, or you, you hit on a lot of really good points. And I think the first one you talked about was the, data product experience, right? Of it, you can't have every single data product be its own experience because um, if you don't have that kind of common experience as to how you're going to get to data, how you're going to access data, then each, um, every time somebody goes to consume, they have to learn how can I consume data from this data product versus how can I consume data from the mesh, right? Consumers don't, shouldn't have to care about that um, specific, what exact data product am I consuming from versus is this something I trust and is this something I want to use? So how have you seen that kind of UI, UX kind of thing happen around data? Have we really nailed that in the past? You know, I mean, data warehouse had, the enterprise data warehouse has many challenges, but it's it at least had the, um, common models so that, that people had that kind of positive user experience aspect to it. Um, it might not have had all the data the way they wanted it with all the context, but like, how have you seen user experience play out and, you know, good and bad? <laughs> so this is a loaded question, right? I mean, the end user at the end of the day, when if I come in the morning and I see my dashboard functioning, I'm happy, right? But you don't know what goes behind the scenes to have a close to near real-time data that is made available depending upon 
what type your user you are, right? You could be an executive, you could be a day-to-day person running reports. Um, so I will pivot this question in a little different way. Let's look at Data Lake. Everybody knows about Data Lake. Uh, I've been fortunate to be affiliated with two large-scale implementations uh, uh, for um, uh, you know Fortune 100s where they did a Data Lake implementation and moved towards a data mesh architecture without even knowing that that's what they were doing. So the key things were you have to democratize the data, you have to take advantage of all that big data that you have in your cloud data, your Hadoop systems and all that stuff, maximize availability and accessibility across your analytics investment, um, achieve a balanced business technology outcome that displays measurable benefits. And the three core principles that I always go talk to my customers about is cost savings, business value, and data reuse, right? So from a cost savings, we have to identify those use cases where possible to reduce your mainly infrastructure cost while still providing business value and data reuse. Now, from a business value standpoint, you'll have to look at it from a, what are those use cases that can unlock business value through removing pain points and creating those net new opportunities for you, right? The net new opportunities can be, you know, things that you have not been uh, thinking about, right? You know, from a, from a KPI standpoint that you never wanted to look at it, but now there is an option, right? When you are looking at it from an infrastructure standpoint. And then the key important thing is data reuse. So you have to align those use cases with associated data domains to identify, maximize, and uh, get that ownership and then centralize the governance and bring your stakeholders along, right? So now, so this is the three principles I look at, cost savings, business value, and data reuse. From a UI UX standpoint, once you take care of that, when you already have the marching orders to put the right ingestion services in, the orchestration, your metadata managed, your cataloging, your telemetry, whatever data that you have, all that you're done, it's much more easier for going to the customer and showing that value that, hey, uh, from a usability standpoint, and this is all part of your digital ecosystem, right? That I'm able to bring in that confidence that my data is close to near real time. And once that confidence comes in, even you can have the basic rudimentary report in a self-service mode, the customers would be happy, right? <laughs> even if, if it is Excel, they'll be happy. It doesn't have to be uh, a jazzy tool like a Power BI or Click or Tableau and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and I, I really like that that framework. And um, we've been talking in the community about how do you measure the ROI of, of data mesh? And, and I think these are, are good points to kind of point to. What have you found if somebody is trying to drive buy-in internally, what have you found has the the higher um, pull? Is it to, to kind of hit on that cost savings quickly if you can get there up front and so then you can prove that value more quickly versus the business value is kind of the long run and that's the dreamer thing and that's where you're kind of pitching the CEO type or, you know, the data reuse. I think a lot of what you talked about is also just being able to trust that data where somebody can, they're not discovering data in a data lake and going, what is this? <laughs> it's, it's, it's telling them what it is. It's got to be documented well. So like, what, what do you see as, as trying, somebody trying to do a POC what have you found has been successful um, to 
driving beyond that POC, that if you were able to just show that value up front? So that's that's basically you know, trying to bring that product thinking in the mindsets, right? Data as a product, that's going to be very, very critical. We went about, I still remember about 13 years ago, uh, EDW was not an agile project, right? When we had agile concepts introduced, a lot of enterprise data warehouses were all more SDLC driven. I will basically get the data moved, build that ODS and make it available through data marts and go in, right? Just about 13 years ago, we started talking about bringing in agile, keep the lights on on certain use cases, certain systems, start building in new products, bring in a product owner from a domain and make that person responsible for making sure those use cases have been successful. So now we are looking at more the modernization aspects, right? How do you modernize a data platform? With the cloud being a very strong play in the last three, four years with COVID, we have seen how much cloud has become so important, right? For everything that we're doing. Um, the, the things that I always go and tell my customers is find a way to democratize that data, liberate your data, right? Make it much more a distributed architecture. Uh, have that self-service concept and the empowerment given to the people that are going to be working on it as well as the people who are going to be consuming it, right? From your DBAs to your data analysts, data engineers, to the people like the data scientists and to the end users who are going to be using, right? So the consumption is going to be very, very strong. But doing all this stuff, you'll have to look at it, making it as a product, bring in that end-to-end ownership mindset, meaning you don't have the product owner just focusing on the data moving from the source all the way into the ingestion layer, right? Make the product owner own the entire thing, right? From all the way from the source to the consumption. And that's the, going to be that mindset, right? And that's going to be that game changer, which I'm not saying that they're not doing it, but if you make that productized mindset in, I think uh, you will start seeing that value coming in and the consumption and usability side. And so, so, but if I were to just get you to pin just uh, one, two or three, if you were, if you are advising somebody on, a POC and they're trying to pitch it to the rest of their organization. What do you think has the most cachet to, to, to kind of move forward? If somebody is trying to drive that buy-in internally, it's not that it's coming top down, but somebody's trying to pitch it. Do you think it's the, the POC is the cost savings, the business value or the data reuse? Would you go for cost savings just because it's got the easiest to measure? Cost savings is an immediate sell because most of the IT budget is owned by (laughs) the growth officer, you know, uh, and the CMOs and, you know, so that will sell fast, right? The business value across the board to different uh, domain owners, that would be the second one. So, and the third one is the technology one, right? If you make it more of a cloud first, right? Meaning really you have to be bought into implementing a cloud-based system, right? Data system. Then you have bought into it and you're able to justify the cost because the cost will take care of it. Your consumption grows over time and you have less uh, ingestion challenges. You don't don't need that many data engineers as you build your CI CD orchestrated layer, right? Uh, Using your XOPS. And um, 
and there you go. You uh, the your puddles have become ponds, your ponds have become lakes, and your lakes have become oceans. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also like that you said X ops, just because it, it is that like you know X. It's getting it's a buzzword now. Everybody's yeah. talking about it. Data ops and DevOps and X ops <laughs> and DevSec ops and DevSec exactly. data ops and <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that, and I think. Um, that's kind of what I'm seeing is is a lot of the use cases. Some of them, the initial use cases have been um, business value, but that the cost savings ones get a lot more play early. And then you go, this is just an easy win for us. And it, it also builds that muscle early, right? So um, one question that I've been seeing a lot that I don't know that we've historically solved very well in in data is data discovery and data discovery means a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people but have you seen anything historically of trends of of where we've done that kind of you know it is that data democratization it's it's not just can you find the data but it's can you use the data can you understand the data can you interoperate the data like all of that like have you seen any anything historically from an organizational or a technology or an architecture basis that people could look to to get some inspiration? Because th- this seems to be the challenge that comes up pretty often in a lot of conversations. I see that because um, I tend to you know get into these workshops and trying to understand the customer. For example, there was a recent customer we were doing some. Uh, for a revenue recognition, right? We've been doing uh, a workshop for seeing if they are the right suitable customer for moving towards a data cloud environment on Snowflake. And uh, the importance was all like how tightly the architecture was coupled and ways they're doing things and they want to be nearest to the dollar and cents. So uh, the aim should be always is to take a pause look at data discovery and spend a lot more effort upfront before taking the plunge, you know? So data discovery has to be part of your engagement model, right? Whether it's a two week, three week or a four week engagement, depending upon your use case, you have to do that. And then you have to basically treat it as like, okay, I have to look at the domain specific things, how, what kind of, uh, you know, uh, anomalies that I'm going to see, what kind of uh, volumetrics that can I derive from, if I were to look at moving from a legacy platform, whether I'm using my lift and shift strategy versus my uh, greenfield, right, migration, look at all those things. I think a two-week, three-week uh, uh, data-led, discovery-led approach is mandated regardless. Even if you have jumped in and you've already gone into an architecture where you have the company is bought in and your teams are ready to go, take a pause, you know, a few days, look at it, have a meaningful discussion, uh, you know, and uh, look at if this, uh, you know, it is that domains are operating, uh, providing the value, make sure the customer is, uh, the, the guys who are on the product ownership are participating in those discussions and get most of the value from those uh, discovery sessions. So, Scott, so basically discovery is important. And I think every project that we in the practitioner side, we always recommend our customers and uh, to do a discovery-led um, engagements. I think that's that's an interesting point that I haven't heard made as much because 
it is the domain-driven design and it is kind of doing the internal data product marketing. But I think you kind of, people are looking to solve discovery via the technology, right? Of, okay, this data scientist needs to be able to find this data versus if you have that domain to domain communication of, hey, data scientist, here's here's the access to the people and let them actually even just talk to you rather than it's it's um, it's just the data products are there and you can find it in that way. I think that people to people communication hasn't been really specified for discovery um, in a lot of the conversations. And I really like that because it does mean that the people know not just that there are data products or what might kind of be in there, but they can have that person-to-person conversation. And you might have the domains go, oh, you really want this extra information that I wouldn't have put in. So it's almost the pre-discovery as to what people are going to want to consume and that you have that person-to-person conversation. That's a really, really interesting approach that I hadn't, I hadn't heard or thought of before. So I, I really like that. I think that's, that's a, a very, very. And, and you also know, right, Zamak, uh, in one of her articles, she said that the distributed data architecture requires an enterprise view, right? So how do you get to that enterprise view is bringing in the stakeholders close to the decision-making while you start your engagement. And that's why the discovery is going to be very critical because an architecture just alone won't fulfill its full potential, right? The teams that are going to deploy it, the data service themselves uh, that they're going to be working with, the siloed aspects, those all need to come together, right? And consistent communication, commitment, and strong governance are required to scale this up. Yeah, and I fully agree on that. And I think you had mentioned earlier some stuff about standards as well when you were talking about um, moving away from the enterprise data warehouse, we do have to have standards about how we work together and how data should be interoperable and how it should be stored. You know, we want to give domains the autonomy, but like anytime I talk to people in data mesh about standards, everyone goes, yeah, yeah, we need to have them. But then it's trying to get to specifics. There's nothing there. What, what have you seen around historically around standards for data? You know, not just the standard model for a company in the enterprise data warehouse, but like how we collaborate together and share each other's contexts with or share a similar model so that we can uh, interoperate, but that we don't drop context on the floor, which has been a challenge with the enterprise data warehouse. I think... Um you got to go back to what the four core principles is, right? That we all know around the data mesh. One is the pushing the accountability uh, to the domains, right? That is something that we're seeing. We're struggling day in, day out with our data governance councils, the organizations who are trying to get the data governance going. And that's going to be very, very critical because you have pushing that accountability, right? And yeah, and uh, that means you have to transition from a mindset of being very siloed and more of that enterprise view that I talked about. Then the second thing is you have to look at it from a self-service standpoint, right? Where you are having a a self-service, not just to your data generalist, but to your catered audience. Because catered audience, if you were able to have your data scientist and your 
your report generalist work together and provide that value back to the business saying that this is what we found in, uh, in 2022 versus 2021 and our year-over-year data sets, those kind of things are going to be very, very critical. Um, and uh, then the data platform itself attempts to mobilize the generalists, right? So you have to be catching up for that. And then the other one is the decentralized, automating the decentralized governments. So now you talk to the council, you had something where you are trying to emphasize that we want accountability. Then you talk to your end users saying that, okay, self-service is a push and they got into it. The third one is how do you automate it? And that's going to be the most critical thing. And automation means literally the whole engine has to work, right? Seamlessly. And then um, harmonizing the data from the source system all the way through the transition layer uh, and making it available for the uh, end users, that's going to be super critical. So, uh, you know, just to summarize this, I would say domain-oriented ownership, federated computational governance, which is going to be very important, then data as a product, and self-service data platform. Those are the critical ones. And and, um, so that harmonization aspect, how, when when we've tried to do that historically, when I've seen things on harmonization, do you have anything where you've seen harmonization go well? Because anytime I hear people talking about it, it's that it's not been, it's not an easy thing and it's not gone well. So like, how do we harmonize? So um, five years ago, I got used to this concept called data fabric. Mm-hmm. You're, you're familiar with the data fabric, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, one of uh, Forrester's analysts, uh, Noel Johanna, uh, she was one of the first individuals who started talking about uh, uh, data fabric, bringing that data fabric layer. How do you build that concept between managing and making it much more available through the transactional systems and all that, right? So... Now, let's be honest. We had several vendors. We had talent. We had Informatica. We had uh, capabilities such as Atacama, Denoda, and uh, now with Google Cloud, Dataplex, and all that stuff. Has that Nirvana state with Data Fabric achieved, right? <laughs> and has that governance ever uh, gotten the benefits? A- absolutely, yes. But I won't give it a rating of five out of five. I would say three because it's just been around for almost seven, eight years and we're doing it. But now we have data mesh now. Fabric is all uniting everything together. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're going from the cataloging layer to the orchestration layer, going from all the way to the reporting analytics and data science groups and bringing all that together. Now, when you look at the data mesh, data mesh is just very different. Right. It is basically saying, okay, we tried uniting you all together. Right. We had capability three out of five. Now with data mesh, what we're saying is, okay, all the pitfalls that we had doing with the data fabric layer, we're going to put it back in and making sure that this is going to be robust. Okay. The challenges that we had with the domain owners, we challenges with productization. We're going to address it by decentralizing, giving you guys the control and this way you have the powers to be to make the decision and help us push the value of data across the enterprise yeah it's it's yeah I mean, you have to think it through that way right because data mesh is now 2 3 years old data fabric has been there what are we doing how do we connect the dots and how do we bring both together 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. I think people are expecting data mesh to be kind of the unifying theory of everything. And it's like, it's not, it was never meant to be. If, if you look at it, it's for, you know, data analytics, uh, you know, a lot of the, the first things that Jamak was talking about was much more even ML of, you know, we need to have this data available in a clean, trustable, you know, uh, harmonizable, um, interoperable way that is shared. So that way we're agile when it comes to, to ML. And it, you know, as people have picked up on it more and more, it's it, more people are excited about it for the analytical side as well. And, and I think that makes sense, but yes, it's not trying to extend into the operational plane and it's not trying to be, you know, the, the DevSecOps and all that stuff of, um, of how we're trying to do absolutely all of uh, data across the operational and the analytical plane. So, and and I think it's interesting as well. I I don't know what like how clear that split between operational and analytical is because there's there's so much blurry lines there where you think about an ML model that's you know serving to real time and it's it's doing analytics in real time but it's an operational uh uh you know system and everything like that and you think about some real time analytics use cases that are you know recommendation engines and all sorts of different things you know the rise of apache pino and things like that where do you see kind of those splits happen or do you think that that, that completely goes away or is, or is this kind of, again, that pendulum where, where it's, it swings where it's like they're very, very separate and then they're kind of mixed and then they're going to go back to very, very separate or? So very interesting question. I think I want to tie it up, right, uh, to my previous uh, commentary on mesh and fabric. So data mesh is all about bringing people and process than architecture itself, right? Unlike yeah. data fabric, which is more bringing the architecture together. But the key thing is the operational versus analytical thing. So let's take a step back, right? We are in the age of AI. We're doing a lot of machine learning algorithms. Uh, five years ago, it was a black box. Nobody knew. Everything was like, wow, we're going to have data scientists. Wow, we're going to have machine learning engineers, right? Statistics, PhDs, and all that. Now, ah, it's okay. I can get the data scientists. Because we now know where to plug them in the organization. We now know where their value comes. They are sitting in between the data that is getting generated out and the data, the consumer, right? And they play a very critical role. And the ML ops and everything else that happens is on that layer. So I'm going to draw upon a very quick uh, architecture uh, that uh, we presented to one of our customers, which is basically Snowflake-driven on AWS, right? And the customer asked us, well, how do we have enable our data scientists? How do we make it much more operational? Where are our algorithms going to sit? If that was your question, that's going to be outside the entire data processing itself. So in the olden days, we used to have, depending upon whether you're not modernized your data platform, we used to have a data mart. The data mart was going to be the one which is going to make you more analytical, more slice and dicing, everything, you know, much more granular, uh, the 
Rollup and Molap, if you remember those, right, concepts that came out. Now with this, what happens is after the data coming in through the Snowflake and you have the virtual warehouses, the data is now going out and sitting in a, a different, a specific layer, right, where which is just meant for your data scientists to come and play their algorithms on, right? So what you happen is there's the divide has now clearly been put in place. Operational view of the architecture, and now the uh, the ML view, which is the analytic view, is sitting in the consumption side. The knowledge about this wasn't there five years ago because we were all carried away with, wow, this is a hot technology. We can cut to the chase. We don't need to go through the uh, complete uh, EDW. We can go straight to the source system, plug on it, do some R and Python-based algorithms, and boom, get the data. No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> you have to follow it, but we have the segregation now. Yeah, and, and I think the rise of ML ops is kind of, uh, there's another X ops for you, but um, I, I, I like uh, Demetrius Brinkman and the ML ops community a lot because a lot of it is the practicality of this isn't just hot stuff anymore. It's how do we actually leverage this? Like business value. <laughs> Why? Why are we doing this? Um, and and you, you kind of touched on a couple of things that I think would dovetail nicely as well with the concept of the modern data stack. Are you are you a, a, a fan or not a fan of the modern data stack, or or do you think it's it's just yet another um, kind of uh, buzzword that that doesn't really have a a very clear definition, or or like do you think that that's something that's helping people to be productive and that's useful in in a lot of cases? Um. I, I'm a fan of whatever my customer likes, <laughs> but uh, but as a practitioner, I have to advise and do the right thing, right? So so doing the right thing is very simple. Chase the business value, chase the cost savings, right? The modern data stack is all about commoditizing your data um, uh, ecosystem, okay? The modern data stack today tells you that I don't need to have X number of ETL engineers, X number of uh, folks doing reporting, X number of DBAs running my Teradata platform, my Informatica and all the stuff, admins, right? So I am a big fan of that is because you, you truly, you're bringing value to the business with limited uh, investments, plus the technology is there, right? So uh, Snowflake talks about zero administration, right? time travel, where you have archived data available 90 days. A lot of those things were not there before. When we started doing uh, an implementation, I remember 14, 15 years ago uh, for an airline industry, this was all, we were doing Teradata-based T-SQL, standing up in a Teradata environment and running a private cloud, all that. And it was cost, it was very costly, right? Yeah. Now the cost savings are there. Now that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is how seamless things can be and how easy it is to go get that data and get that value. That's the most important thing for me. Cost is for let the uh, the number of people uh, work on it. For me, I'm more about efficiency. And that efficiency from being a practitioner, from managing large teams is how fast my team members can get things done with all the open source um, uh, technologies like Terraform, uh, you know, Using crowdsourcing platforms for uh, um, you know for coming and uh, doing uh, 
the technology work. I mean, we have top coder and those kind of platforms available where we can put a use case out. We have the data scientists coming in, showing that value. So that's the modernization stack, right? And you have to think modern because you can be paying $400,000, for these monolithic models and the source systems that you have uh, operationally, right? You have to save the cost. You have to have a compute and storage where you can wax and wane based on usage and uh, and and commoditize uh, the ecosystem and your architecture. How how do you drive resiliency and reliability within that as well? If if you're focused on the agility, the integrations can be um, a little <laughs> fragile, a little spaghetti ish. So like, how have you worked towards? You get kind of that. Um, MVP out, and then you're you're building the re- resiliency as you go. But you could also just get pulled in a million different directions to just keep trying to add value in new ways instead of, and you're just creating some tech debt. So, what have you seen a good way to balance that, or or is it just totally organization dependent? It's um, organizational dependent. It is also about how much do you have the appetite, right? Suppose if I am a financial services company, I have to do loss prevention. I have to go to my customers and offer my customers better uh, UI, UX, more data in their hands, customize products for them, right? Whether it is a mortgage customer or, uh, uh, you know, uh, a private customer, right? So those are my appetite, right? It's all about how much I want. So for me, what is modern is, I can put a AWS stack with Snowflake, with get API layer done with MuleSoft, uh, get uh, you know um, a lot of this data modeling exercise done using Data Vault. Fine, I can do all that stuff. But is that going to suit the need of the hour or the need for my customers that I have? That's the answer that you have to bridge, right? So the other thing is resiliency is all about future-proofing your architecture. I mean, the last three years, which we've been in this COVID phase in the pandemic side, we have seen everybody trying to jump onto systems, um, uh, you know, getting into the cloud was uh, a lot. We saw cloud investments go up, right? A lot of companies have come in and uh, making that value-added pitch. Uh, We've seen people doing more orchestration using the CI-CD platform. We've seen uh, API-driven architectures coming through SnapLogic and MuleSoft. So those are all things that you would see consistent investment coming from depending upon which industry you are in and what your use cases look like. Um, now, security is playing a very vital role now. In the last uh, three years, I'm seeing, um, you know, Immuta, Secupy, and all these companies are coming and adding more and more of that value add along with your cloud and modernization uh, pitch, right? So that's also going to be very important and you have to take that into account because there is breaches every day. And, um, it, it, you know, it is, uh, it is all about what you want, right, at the end of the day. Yeah, that, that, uh, the governance side and the security side, a lot of people think about the governance and internal and it's, it's not, uh, uh, sorry. No, you're not in a perfect world. You have to start somewhere <laughs> and there'll be some failures, right? But the key is to remember that showing everything into a monolithical data architecture won't support the 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 you know the masses yeah it has to be very surgical yeah well this has been i think really great and really helpful for uh, a lot of folks i think this will give them a lot more perspective 
rather than just, you know, a lot of people coming towards data mesh are, are coming from the microservices and the um, software engineering side rather than the data side. So somebody who's been focused on, on a, a lot of this, this is a, a lot of very useful information to not, uh, you know, kind of just get attached to the, the new stuff. <laughs> but, you know, we covered a whole lot of different things here. Is there anything that we, we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure that people looking at data mesh are aware of that you think would be good advice or, or kind of good things to watch out for? Yeah. So from an information lifecycle management standpoint, you should look at your investments from five years from now, right? Um, look at it, not just about enabling better insights to the data that you're harnessing. It's more than that. And data mesh points us to a new era of data value and which requires new metrics around how you will monetize those data products and make it available to your uh, consumers. Right? That's That would be my key takeaway. Yeah, I think that's very helpful. Well, this has been really great, Asmath. I, I really appreciate uh, this this context and uh, everything that, that we've kind of talked about here today. Uh, if people want to follow up with you, what's the best way and, and what would you like them to follow up with you about? Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, if they have questions about their journey, how they have invested in a decentralized architecture, uh, or they want to do discovery sessions, or they want to have a particular use case to see if they can stress test on their current architecture that they have, they can always reach out to me. I'm available. And uh, uh, the best way is at linkedin.com slash Asmat Pasha. I'll, I'll drop that in the, in the show notes so that way people uh, can have an easy link to that. You're a consultant as well, so we didn't know if you wanted to let people know about what you're doing in that realm. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I'll be more than happy to render services for you folks. I've uh, been having plenty of uh, work I've done in the consulting field. Right, I was with Capgemini. I was with Paradigm uh, Technology. And uh, as a CDO recently, I've... Uh, offered services across the whole uh, gamut from uh, from data analytics to cloud to uh, AI and ML. So I'll be more than happy to, uh, you know, uh, give you focused uh, sessions and uh, advisory. Okay. Well, this has been very great. So thank you so much, Asmath. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, everyone. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Asmath Pasha from the Forbes Technology Council. If you'd like to get in touch, his LinkedIn is in the show notes. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around 
your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Thank mm-hmm. you.